This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. With one of the world's largest railroad libraries at your fingertips, we make it even more fun. This is the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall, and he's Jim Martin. At least I was the last time I checked. Welcome to the show, where we do our best to dole out equal amounts of fun, information, and inspiration. We keep it short, we keep it sharp, and we hope we're keeping you as loyal listeners. Be sure to spread the word about us. Later in the show, I'm going to welcome back Chris Lane of Carson's Publications. He's going to tell us about the 2011 edition of the HON3 Annual. First, though, it's Jim's turn at the mic as he chats with Alex Ristoff of Atlanta, Georgia. If you ever feel lonely in the hobby, give a thought to Alex and the skill that he's chosen. Here's Jim. Quick quiz. How many of you listening to this show have heard of TT Scale? If you are of European extraction, you may have. If you are a North American modeler, you probably have to be as old as me to remember the magazine ads for HP products, who at one time were the chief suppliers to the scale on this side of the pond. Now, we hope you've first visited the links to this interview for a more complete overview, but suffice it to say, TT at one-tenth of an inch to the foot is one one-hundred-twentieth the size of the real thing, which puts it between HO and N scale in size. Now, one has to wonder what the state of the scale might be today if, say, Irv Athern had adopted TT instead of HO in the early 50s. What would TT be like today if it had the same manufacturing push that Backman gave to ON30? Well, if you are a TT supporter, such as the stuff of dreams and commiseration, TT isn't dead, and our next guest is doing his best to promote its growth through his own manufacturing efforts and his website, TT Nut. Alex Ristov is with us on the line now from his home in Atlanta. Alex, uh, thanks for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. Hey, Jim, how are you? Not bad at all, and I trust you're doing well in TT scale, are you? Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, tell us how TT Nut started. Uh, how did you get this uh, site going? I used to frequent German sites, actually, for TT. And, you know, there's some automatic translators online, uh, Google, Battlefish, a whole bunch will do it. But a lot of times the translations come out either wrong or just Hilarious. very funny. <laughs> very funny, but, you know, you tend to miss a lot. So I said, well, I want to talk about this in English. So started a site. And that's pretty much it. Were you surprised by the response? How many uh, how many people are on your site? Do you know? There are just over 170 regular users, but we get a lot more traffic than that daily. Yeah, that's a pretty solid core group. Uh, what attracts modelers to TT? Now, you, for instance, and and how many others would you say are there in North America modeling in TT? Well, myself and a lot of other East European transplants, you know, we grew up with the scale, so. We've known it since we were little. Uh, we've been used to it, and it's kind of stayed with us. For those in North America, you know, I, I think it's a lot of the older guys who still remember HP and Gandhi Dancer and, you know, all the old companies, and they like scratch building. They like a challenge, but I think ultimately it's the scale itself. It really is a fantastic scale. You get so much more track than, than you do in HO, but you don't lose any of the detail or anything like that. And, you know, especially as some modelers get older, they find it hard to deal with N. The fingers don't work quite as well anymore, and the eyes don't. And, and like I said, it's, it's just really a great scale. And I think a lot of people recognize that, and they're willing to deal with some things in, yeah. in order to, to model in it. I'm an S scaler myself, and I find it amusing that S and uh, TT 
are both often cited as the two ideal scales, which with proper growth might have pushed back N, H, O, and O scale. So I'm betting that your website uh, hosts a lot of the same discussion I see on the S scale sites. Would I be right? Well, we do to some degree, but, you know, everybody kind of has an idea of what TT has been through, how it started, where where it could have been if the right things were in place, if, if a big company pushed it, if the advertising was there. You know, we know the failed attempts to restart it in recent years, you know, in the 80s, 90s. But we really don't talk about it too much. It's kind of just regurgitating the same thing over and over. Well, commiseration uh, is counterproductive, isn't it, really? Well, I mean, it's good to know the past. obviously. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, but we really focus on what is it today and what can it be tomorrow? There are various discussions that have happened, uh, you know, as far as the past and, oh, if only this, oh, if only that. And uh, I tend to not get into those. It's just, there's nothing productive for me there. So I, and, uh, I try to steer towards what are we doing today and tomorrow. TT was invented in North America, correct? The it scale? was indeed. A gentleman by the name of Hal Joyce. Yet, the main manufacturing push grew in Eastern Europe during the Cold War years uh, after HP receded. I'm wondering if your American members find it ironic or amusing that uh, former adversaries helped keep the scale alive for them. Nice irony, huh? Yeah, there is. I've read a lot of comments like, man, you know, 15 years ago, we were at war with these guys, and now we're talking to them about toy trains. You know, how crazy is that? Isn't that a great connector? It's fantastic. You know, on my site, there's a bunch of Russian guys. Uh, We actually have people from all over, but yeah, it's pretty funny to have the Russian guys over. And actually, one of them has a company named Norkin Model. And they're producing U.S. stuff. They're still at the very beginning of the effort, but they've already done a brass etch kit for an SD45 shell. That's already done. A bunch of us have them in our hands. They're now doing another one for an 8-40 CW. It's funny. The Eastern Europeans and the Russians kept the scale alive, and, and now a few Russians are, are actually working to get U.S. models in our hands. You know, I, so, it's great you're doing modern prototypes because I, it sounds to me TT, if it's going to grow, is going to grow for young eyes and young fingers. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, especially for the younger guys, they tend to model more what they see. It's always nice to have steam and whatnot. But exactly as you said, if we're going to attract the young people, we, we have to have more current stuff. And honestly, at this point, with what's available production-wise and so on and so forth, it's a lot easier to do diesels. So we're not going back too far. We're not, you know, there's no steam right now to speak of. There's the, the old HP stuff, but that's pretty much it. And I think a lot of the, the guys who are kind of in, in this manufacturing efforts or who are at least trying to do something, they tend to be younger, so it's more modern locomotives. Now, TT currently exists as two separate entities. You've got the European models, uh, I guess with a large-scale manufacturing push behind it. You've got the North American prototype. Is, is there much cross-pollination uh, between the two? You, you mentioned, for example, these uh, modern uh, North American diesel shells. Do North American models, for example, adapt uh, European mechanisms for their own? modeling efforts? Yeah, actually, it's pretty common. There are a few European prototypes where the trucks are the right size, the wheels are the right size, the chassis will fit under some of the shells we have. So that does happen uh, on a pretty regular basis. I think we're trying little by little to change that. It would be nice to have purpose-built units. The whole, whatever you want to call it, movement is still very much in its infancy. Mm-hmm. But I think we're laying down the groundwork for a lot of things that are going to be possible within the next few years. You know, especially with having to use the European prototypes, you know, a lot of times you only need something very simple like a pair of trucks. So you, you don't want to spend money on a whole locomotive, and just getting parts can be a pain sometimes. So 
we're, we're trying to get away from that. Understood. I was reawakened to the fact, Alex, that there are American suppliers to the scale. I guess a couple of years back, I picked up an issue of Continental Modeler, and I found a product review for a steel boxcar and a Fowler patent boxcar by Gold Coast Models in Oregon. Who else is making North American stuff? There really isn't anybody else right now. Gold Coast is is awesome. Their models are very good, and just the fact that they have the cojones to produce models in the scale makes them that much better. They're, they're an example that, yeah, you can produce stuff for TT and make money. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it, right? There was a company until very recently, actually about a month ago, Possum Valley Models, who was making a lot of shells, but also cast resin cars that you put together yourself, you paint, and so on and so forth. A few of their locomotive models actually came with chassis and you know, motors and, and the whole shebang. Unfortunately for us, the gentleman who was running the company decided to, to do other things with his retirement, so mm-hmm. that's no longer around. That's pretty much it as far as manufacturers. Um, there's a bunch of guys on their own kind of doing little things here and there. Is it possible to build a TT layout without having to scratch build anything? I wish I could say yes, but at the current time it is not. So that's where you come in. We're into an exciting era now. We have laser cutting, software for building papers, uh, CAD and rapid prototyping. Uh, They're making a lot more models possible. Can you tell us about your association with Shapeways? You've designed some uh, locomotive shells and uh, I believe some modern hoppers, right? Yeah, actually, I stumbled onto Shapeways by complete accident. And a few months later, the website has started becoming more mature and there were a few more registered users and some conversation was starting to go on. And the standard topic of why won't somebody make something kept coming up. And I figured, you know what? Well, there is that place that I know of that'll do, you know, rapid prototyping and I know CAD, why don't I put something together and see what comes out? So I did a mill gondola, you know, sent off the designs, got back the uh, the model and I was happy with it. You know, I showed it to the guys on the site. They said, hey, we want it too. And the way Shapeways works is actually they buy directly from Shapeways. I just upload the model. They buy directly through Shapeways. It's very, very easy to do. So after that, I did uh, three more cars. I did a pretty contemporary chlorine tank car. There's a couple of PS2 hoppers, a two-bay and a three-bay version. And now I'm working on a locomotive, actually. It's a U30B U-boat. Mostly I'm using Shapeways basically for for R&D. Most of the parts are going to be, there's going to be a few off-the-shelf parts, there's going to be some metal parts, and there's going to be a lot of cast parts. But for a lot of the R&D, I'm using Shapeways and, you know, nailing down the final design and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's it's very nice to have that ability. It's very cheap to be able to actually develop something and have it at a state where you're ready to manufacture. Mm-hmm. Now, the manufacturing itself, there's a bit more there, especially with something like a locomotive, obviously. But, um, yeah, I think it's it's going to make a lot of things possible, you know, whereas before you, you're required to have, you know, lathes and, and mills and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, this is just to produce prototypes mm-hmm. for, you know, what will be the end part. And it can be very expensive. Uh, but, yeah, with, with RP, life is becoming much better. Well, Alex, i got to say, uh, TT may never make the same market penetration as HO, but with uh, talented and motivated members of the scale like you, it sounds like it's going to keep moving ahead anyway. So uh, thanks for being with us here today on the Model Railway Show. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Alex Ristov of TT Nut, a TT enthusiast and a TT innovator. 
Thanks, guys. Well, you know, Jim, you and I both model in S scale, and we thought it was a little thin on the ground. But TT scale, <laughs> that's got to be a challenge. You it, must have to love scratch building for it, that. It takes a special dedication, but I'm thinking Alex couldn't have done what he's doing 10 or even 5 years ago. Now he can send a disc off and get a model produced, not yes. just for himself but others. Yes, Shapeways is doing a great job. I know that you have some S scale trucks that were produced by Shapeways as well. And yes, and the uh, remarkable thing is they were developed by uh, Rennie Gourlay of the Proto uh, 87. That's right. Group. Absolutely. And uh, they, I guess they just pumped the printer up 1.37 and I've got... And off you go. Thank and, you, Rene, by the way. I want to talk to you someday about that. And, and, you know, it really is great that we're seeing these new technologies come on board. And one of the things that I've noticed over the past year as we've done this show is that number of model railroaders who really are at the forefront of technologies. Last episode, we had Joe Fugate here and he was talking about electronic mm-hmm. publishing. Yes. That's something that we're certainly uh, on the forefront of. Uh, Shapeways is another example. This is 3D printing. I know some people who've brought uh, 3D printing samples they've seen at trade shows for you know the electronics industry or other things, and they're pretty simple stuff. And you see this pent-up demand of model railroaders who are saying, we want this kind of stuff, and we've got projects we want to do, and, and they're busy developing the tools to try and make the, the stuff even finer printing than it has been. It's only going to get better. I think it is. You know, And, and actually, an example of that sort of print-on-demand thing is the uh, Model Railway Show official podcast uh, swag. swag. The swag. Absolutely. Why don't you tell us about that? Indeed. The Model Railway Show now has a shop where you can pick up reminders of the show you're listening to right now. We have uh, t-shirts and sweatshirts. We have coffee mugs and water bottles. Absolutely, yes. A reminder now, though, the uh, best way to listen to the show, if you're not already, is uh, by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeet.net, and you'll never miss an episode. Well spoken. Well, now it's Trevor's turn as he welcomes Chris Lane back to the show. Regardless of the scale in which you work, if you like narrow-gauge prototypes, you're going to find something of interest in the HON3 annual from Karsten's Publications. The 2011 edition is out and features two dozen articles in its 116 pages, from layout tours to construction articles to features on scenery and prototype inspiration, there's plenty between the covers. It seems like I've always seen this on the shelves at my local hobby shops, but truth be told, the HON3 annual is only in its third year. To tell us more about the annual and what's inside this year's edition, I'm pleased to welcome back Chris Lane to the show. Chris handles special projects and books for Karsten's publications. He edits the HON3 annual as well as its older cousin, the ON30 annual. You'll remember that he joined me earlier this year to speak about narrow-gauge modeling in 1-48, to and it's great to have him back to give us the skinny on HON3. Welcome back to the Model Railway Show, Chris. Hi, Trevor. Good to be back. As I just mentioned, you edit both the HON3 annual and the ON30 annual. They obviously have some similarities. They both come out once a year, being annuals, and each has 116 pages, and they both cover narrow-gauge subjects. But beyond the obvious difference in scale between the two, How are those two publications different? Well, I think there's a little bit of difference in focus. And like all generalities, there are plenty of exceptions. But as a rule, the ON30 guys tend to focus more on individual pieces of equipment, whereas the HON3 modelers have more of an overall focus on the total pictures. The ON30 modeler may knock themselves out on one structure, whereas the HON3 modeler is concerned with the whole town. And this seems to be true for rolling stock, locomotive, 
perspective, scenery, and, and just all aspects of modeling. Those differences obviously reflect the differences in the HON3 and the ON30 communities, but what makes HON3 unique in the narrow-gauge modeling world as a whole? Well, I think the ON30 modeler never starts out in O-scale or narrow-gauge. Because they come from different scales, it takes them time to get used to the size of the structures, and they tend to be enthusiastic about everything because it's new and exciting. The HON3 modeler has usually been in HO as long as they've been a model railroader, and they usually have been in narrow gauge for quite a while and, and, and even have a few layouts under their belt. Therefore, they're looking for different kinds of projects and information. They're usually looking to enhance what they already know by learning some new or different ways of doing things, and they also like to see what their fellow HON3 modelers are up to. What makes HON3 unique is the wide variety of modeling choices. In other narrow-gauge scales, uh, track equipment, figures, uh, and the like are kind of limited. But in HON3, you can draw from the whole of the HO world and as the most popular narrow-gauge modeling scale in the most popular scale overall, you have a great many choices. And I think because all of those choices, you can create a very unique layout. The ON30 annual came first, and I assume it must have had an influence on the creation of the HON3 annual. As I mentioned earlier, it's only been in publication for three years now. How did the HON3 annual come about? Well, we'd had a lot of success with the ON30. It was uh, widely uh, appreciated, and we felt like the HON3 modeler would respond equally well to a publication that they could call their own. As we've seen in HO and, and, and even O scale now, once a good supply of ready-to-run products becomes available, the modeling focus changes a little bit. And I wanted to help the HO and three guys embrace that change and transition to it, while at the same time providing inspiration and material to keep their model building and scratch building skills sharp. And to a large extent, I think we've been pretty successful with that. My impression from looking at some of the photos for this year's edition, I, I've ordered my copy, but it hasn't yet arrived as we record this. But my impression, just looking at some of the photos on the website that promotes this annual, is that HON3 is the true home for absolutely spectacular scenery. Indeed, this edition has four features that are devoted to scenery. You've actually called those out in a separate section in the table of contents. Is that opportunity to do absolutely amazing scenery the main driver that attracts people to HON3? I think it's certainly one of the big factors. Because of the size of HO, you have a good blend between equipment and the scenery that it runs in. In the larger scales, people tend to focus more on the equipment because it's larger, obviously, and demands attention. And the scenery plays a little bit of a diminished role. Likewise, if you go to a smaller scale, the scenery takes a larger role, but the individual scenic materials are so small scale-wise, they kind of tend to be a little bit impressionistic. In HO and 3, you can really put the trains in context with the scenery and actually have the ability to model some prototype scenes with a minimum degree of compression. This year's cover story about the Slim Gauge Guild in Pasadena is a perfect example of that. They've taken a number of well-known prototype scenes of narrow gauge in Colorado and replicated them in miniature. I also get the sense that HON3 modelers are more likely than ON30 fans to follow specific prototypes, or at least to try to model a common carrier system that's inspired by a specific prototype. Has that been your experience in editing the two annuals? Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. Part of it, I think, is driven by what was commercially available, and part of it is because the longer you're 
in a scale, the more you tend to know about and be interested in prototype. And as we mentioned before, the HO and 3 modelers have tend to have more years of experience than, say, the average O and 30 modeler. Um, they also tend to model what they've seen or experienced. And much of the narrow gauge that can be seen or ridden today are those later era common carrier type narrow gauge operations. So they're working in HO, and then they go to Colorado, they see the DNRGW or the RGS, and they say, wow, I've got to do this. And out comes the HO, and in goes the HON3. Yeah, or even uh, on the East Broadtop or the East Tennessee and Western North Carolina. And I'm very pleased to mention this year's annual features a lot of Eastern narrow gauge modeling, including some color prototype photos of the Eastern Tennessee and Western North Carolina that were taken in the 40s. So for you East Coast fans, you're not getting left out this year. We have plenty of Colorado, but we've got plenty of East of the Mississippi too. And I'll just put in a plug for the uh, the. Canadian fans, it's your turn to write something for Chris and get some Canadian narrow gauge into next year's annual. Absolutely. There was plenty up there, and, and we'd love to see some. Now, now, what else drives people to work in HON3? We've mentioned scenery. We've mentioned the prototype experience. What else gets their clocks running? I think it's the freedom to pursue in so many different areas. If you wanted to buy just box stock models off the shelf, you could do that and build a nice layout. Or, on the other hand, you could go total scratch build. And uh, because the size is big enough to work with, and you can get parts and materials. This year, I have not one, but two articles on scratch and parts building steam locomotives. And when was the last time you saw that anywhere? So these these guys uh, just have the freedom to pursue it in any form that they want. And, and I think uh, that's why it's been so popular with people. Yeah, it's only been three years, but uh, has the HON3 annual changed over that time in terms of the types of stories that are coming up? And, and has HON3 changed over those past three years? Yeah, it definitely has. You'd think with the explosion of ready-to-run cars and locomotives uh, in the last three years, We'd see a lot of vanilla or cookie-cutter kind of modeling, but in fact, the opposite's been true. Here's an example from this year's annual. Everybody in HON3 knows that Blackstone has released the Jackson and Sharp passenger car, so it probably won't surprise anybody that I have four passenger car articles in this year's annual. But what will surprise you is only one of them even features the Blackstone model. And that article involves fitting the coach with working oil lamps built from LEDs. We're finding that the more available products uh, when they come out, the more creative and wider the modeler's projects are becoming. In these last three years, HON3 has gone from a mature scale to an exciting and re-energized one with both veteran and, and new modelers pushing past the boundaries of, of what they were doing before. And that's partly because of the new equipment that's available. And, and as you say, I guess people in narrow gauge tend to look at ready-to-run equipment and the stuff they see on the hobby shop shelves, less in terms of being, you know, this is something I'm going to take out of the box and put on the layout and more in terms of this is raw material for my idea. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. And, you know, we all have favorite phases of the hobby. And when you have a few more items available, we'd all love to scratch build a San Juan and that would be nice. But the reality is that 
would take a very long time. So if somebody gets us part or most of the way there, then we can devote our time to building other models that will never become available commercially or projects that really excite us. And so I think that's why you see people pushing past what they were doing before because they don't have to do everything from scratch themselves. Now, we've already mentioned a number of the uh, features that appear in this year's publication, but just to round it out, what are people going to see when they pick up the HON3 annual this year? Well, you mentioned the scenery articles, and pleased that we have an article about scenery basics. And it's really an article about the thought processes of scenery more than the actual construction. The article's by Ed Prime, and he worked with the late Brian Nolan. He was in the same firehouse as Brian, and he's continuing Brian's tradition of sharing information. We also have a Chalmers No Scene article. And when you get the magazine, I challenge readers to look carefully, and I can guarantee you're going to have a little trouble telling the difference between the prototype photos and the model photos. Sam Swampson uh, has an article for us, uh, does his usual excellent job of showing you how to install a bridge and the surrounding scenery. And we finally have a feature from uh, Burton and Patricia Maxwell on adding the wow factor to your layout, and they have uh, 12 steps for doing that. I mentioned the four-passenger car article and the two locomotive articles. We also have one on how to install a tsunami sound system in a brass locomotive. We have an article on converting Shinohara turnouts to be DCC-friendly. And we also have an article on the surgent scale couplers and how to use those and the draft gear for HO and 3 applications. And we also have three great layout tours, including the Slim Gauge Guild in California. That's perfect. I can't wait for it to land in my mailbox. Chris, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show again. It's been great to have you back. Hey, thank you, Trevor. I appreciate it. It's great to be back. Thanks, Trevor and Chris. We'd like to remind you to be sure to explore all the links attached to our interviews in the episode guides, even for those interviews archived on our site. There's a ton of useful and inspirational stuff hiding behind those blue letters. And for visual inspiration, visit our Flickr gallery, where we have photos of our guest layouts and even workbench photos. And don't forget, you can find us on Facebook. Well, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with two more great interviews with the people who make this hobby what it is. Jim will speak with well-known author and photographer Paul Dokus about his experience photographing layouts across North America. And I will be chatting with Union Pacific modeler Mike Brock about designing a layout worthy of the big boy. If you don't know what that is, well, that's your homework for this week. We couldn't do this show without our full team, so as always, thanks to Dave Woodhead, our musical director, for his noteworthy notes, Otto Vondrak for keeping our website all polished and shiny, and Chris Abbott for his roadside assistance whenever we bend a side ride. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. So long, everyone. Thank you.